According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the scriptures. We are in Philippians chapter 4 this morning. We're in Philippians 4, looking at verses 1 through 9, really centering on the imperatives from verses 4 to 9. We've been dealing with it here in this opening section. When we do conclude uh, the first paragraph, then we'll be moving on to some of the financial issues that then follow in verses 10 and following, where Paul uh, highlights the blessings that the Philippians had received by sending the financial gifts that they did through Epaphroditus, and the fact that they sent funds to Paul, but the ones who profited were the givers. It was the Philippians that profited to their account. Uh, under the grace principles of grace giving. And so we'll, have, we'll be very blessed to study that and, and uh, learn the doctrine as it's presented there. For this morning, though, we're still dealing with the imperatives of verses 4 through 9. I want to get right back to it. So let's open with a word of prayer. Remember, God is spirit. He must be worshipped in spirit and in truth. Shall we pray? Most gracious Heavenly Father, we do come before you this morning thankful for your blessings, thankful for your faithfulness, thankful for your grace, all of which is on display here this morning as we assemble together to receive instruction. Father, this is your grace provision for each one of us. It is your faithfulness. Uh, It is your blessing to us, Father. We call upon your faithfulness to open the eyes of our understanding, to lead us in the paths of righteousness for your name's sake. Father, pray that... (laughs) We're not too tired from the events last night, Father, either the the speaker or the hearers, that uh, in all things that the Word of God will go forth and not be impaired by any human limitations. We give you the praise and the glory, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right. We are definitely uh, coming back down to earth after floating in the the glories of yesterday. All right. And so um, the chapter began with a call to unity and uh, the reminder uh, that Yodi and Seneki had to live in harmony and uh, that they had a past whereby they were marvelous servants. They were marvelous fellow workers with Paul, fellow strugglers with Paul. And uh, and yet, uh, none of us should be resting on our laurels or banking on things that we did back in the day because uh, everything we did back in the dra- uh, day is fine and dandy, but what are we doing now? And are we forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead as we were commanded to do uh, in an earlier chapter. And so we dealt with that, and we also introduced the, the character of Zizigus, the true companion, the one who was designed to help them to reconcile the uh, true companion, as he's referred to in verse 3. I think it's a personal name, and so we started calling him Zizigus and, uh, and addressed the issues there. We then get to this string of imperatives, and so if you're following the outline then and taking notes, this would be main point four. Seven imperatives provide a practical how-to recipe for standing firm in the Lord. And the chapter began with that in verse 1, uh, with stand firm in the Lord, my beloved, and uh, which is, you know, typical, and we get a, an imperative like that. And, and yet here, though, we have a follow-up with really a recipe, a seven-step process for how, how do I stand firm in the Lord. And, and following these imperatives here really helps because number one is rejoice, and oh, by the way, number two is also rejoice. He says it twice in the repetition of the, uh, the rejoicing. But it seems to me as if you go through these seven imperatives that wraps up with thinking and doing 
in verses 8 and 9 that following that list of imperatives, any believer who's doing that, by, by virtue of doing that, is standing firm in the Lord, my beloved, as they are told to do there in verse 1. And so this is what we're walking through presently. We dealt with already the rejoicing issues. The first two imperatives are rejoice and rejoice. And then the third imperative being a passive imperative. Get past these subpoints here. The third imperative is a passive imperative. And we discussed that, the passive imperative, which is often some of the toughest things to obey because we don't actively do it. We just have to sit there and let it happen. <laughs> we have to not impede it from happening. And uh, a passive imperative means that some, something else. So when it says, let your gentle spirit be known to all men, that they're going to know it. They're going to know it by watching you. They're going to know it by watching your, your actions, your, your uh, activity, your lifestyle. And uh, to let them know it means, as a passive imperative, you don't have to make them know it. You just don't have to, you just have to not take steps whereby it uh, throws a stumbling block out there where, where they won't know it. Is that making sense? And so we dealt with this uh, on Wednesday night. We touched on it a little bit a week ago, but really it was the, the bulk of Wednesday night, this past Wednesday, that, uh, that we dealt with that. This third imperative also has an admonishment that's connected to it that says the Lord is near. And a reminder of the Lord's proximity, the reminder that He's nearby, both, of course, geographically in the fact that He's everywhere and that He walks in our midst and He dwells among us, but His coming is also near. And I think temporally, that's the better uh, understanding to take it here, that uh, the Lord is near. The, the trumpet could sound today. The trumpet could sound today and we're, we're out of here. And so why do we harbor these mental attitude sins? Why do we bear these grudges against one another? Why are we so involved in all this carnality and foolishness knowing that the Lord is near? And we could be face to face with Him today, standing before the judgment seat of Christ today, and that uh, reminder becomes a, a goad. It becomes a, a, a prompt so that we, uh, we keep these short accounts and, and make these applications. Be so gentle or be gentle in such a way that all humanity can't help but know it. That they see it, they know it, and it's self-evident. And almost to the point where um, I like how uh, the Declaration of Independence starts off, and we hold these truths to be self-evident, right? I mean, just lay it out there so that anyone looking at it says, wow, that person, that believer is really gentle. That believer is, is a servant of the Lord. And uh, the testimony then becomes undeniable. All right, I'm going to skip through the, some of the subpoints and the details we looked at on Wednesday, some of the vocabulary. The issues too, by the way, if you want to do, if you want to go back and get that MP3 file and remind yourself of those things, uh, the, the idea of gentleness, it's not the fruit of the Spirit gentleness. It's a totally separate word. And so people were getting ready to, to just, you know, get up to praoutes and deal with the fruit of the Spirit and different things there. And I said, well, no, stop right there. It's not praoutes. It's not the fruit of the Spirit gentleness. And distinctions between a gentle temperament, which I think is the fruit of the Spirit gentleness, and then a gentle uh, behavior or mannerism, which is what we see here reflected in your activity. The nearness of the Lord is yet another indication of rapture imminency. And that's where we ran out of time Wednesday night. The nearness of the Lord is yet another indication of rapture imminency. And so we like to promote that. We like to uh, have that sense of, of urgency that we uh, dismiss with here, there, in the air. We have the recognition that today is our final day on this earth. 
And if we're wrong, if tomorrow uh, we wake up for another day, then okay, we were wrong yesterday, but we go with the same assumption today, that today is our last day upon this earth, and, uh, and we operate on that basis. And if we're wrong, well then, tomorrow we'll wake up again, and we'll have that as our attitude tomorrow. But for today, we're expecting to go. All right, which leads us now to our fourth and our fifth imperatives. And I went ahead and brought this out to give it its own main point instead of keeping them as, as subpoints under point four. Um, because I really want to spend some time focusing on this. Point five then, the fourth and fifth imperatives, they are twin absolutes. He says the same thing twice. When he says, be anxious for nothing, but in everything, he's saying the same thing twice. Because if you're going to exclude everything and then you're going to include everything, you're, you're mentioning the same thing in just two different ways. And, and this is typical for Paul. Paul loves doing this. And so when he says, be anxious for nothing on the one hand, what does that exclude? I mean, nothing is nothing. And that, that's pretty much comprehensive. It's an absolute imperative. Uh, and then he gives the flip side because he then contrasts it with in everything. And so he's saying the same thing really in two different ways. And, uh, and I enjoy this. So the fourth and fifth imperatives are twin absolutes within one of the greatest prayer passages in all of Scripture. And, uh, you know, if you think of your favorite prayer Bible verses that you memorized as a kid or grew up with, this has got to be near the top of your charts, or top of my charts anyway. To be anxious for nothing, but in everything, with prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. I mean, wow, how many prayer words are in that one verse, just all by itself? Quite a bit. And so uh, we have it here. And then the consequences. What is the result of this kind of a prayer life? That the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. And so we have the, the promise from the Lord that if we are occupied with Him, and if we are prayerful constantly in all things, that you can't help but have this peace of Christ ruling in your heart. This peace of Christ guarding your heart and your mind in Christ Jesus. And so there's some elements there that I want to talk about as well. So let's start with the be anxious. First of all, Paul is fond of the in nothing and in everything contrast. Paul is fond of this, and we, we studied this at some length in, in the Second Corinthians series a while back, and I know there's more examples than this. I'm just giving you one this morning, but you'll find some other examples of this where Paul will say one thing and then say the exact same thing a second time in maybe slightly different terms. Uh, we had this in Second Corinthians chapter 6. I'll just grab briefly here, verses 3 and 4. So he mentions giving no cause for offense in anything so that the ministry will not be discredited. Giving no cause for offense in anything. Does that leave anything out? (laughs) No, that's universal. That's an absolute statement. Giving no cause for offense in anything so that the ministry will not be discredited. Then he goes on to say, but in everything, commending ourselves as servants of God. And so that's the tandem. And it's really the same thing twice, because in anything or in everything, these are absolute statements that have a comprehensive view. In everything, commending ourselves as servants of God, in much endurance, in afflictions, in hardships, in distresses. And you might be tempted to say, well, what about this or what about that? Yes, that too. Because it's in everything. In beatings and imprisonments and tumults. And I don't like this stuff. Well, it's in everything. (laughs) So this is how we apply these things as we stay faithful, keep our eyes on the Lord, 
and, uh, and deal with that. I know there's more, and I would encourage you to go back to your Second Corinthians notes and find the other ones that were listed there, and, uh, and really be blessed by some of the Pauline style that comes out when he, uh, when he does these things. All right. But now dealing with the for nothing. For nothing be anxious. This is our imperative and what we want to recognize. For nothing be anxious. And, and I would ask to stop and consider, and I, I put the word order in a different word order because the, the for nothing is up front in the Greek, just like the in everything is up front in the Greek. And that helps us not lose track of what the parallel is. So for nothing be anxious. And it's... Uh, does it make a difference to us if we phrase it this way or if we phrase it in a negative? Because it doesn't. T- this verse does not tell you to not be anxious. The verse does not say, do not be anxious. It says, be anxious. But then it says, be anxious for nothing, for not even one thing. And, and I don't know, I just, to me that jumps out and to me that, that makes it more forceful, it makes it more powerful when the imperative is be anxious for not even one thing for nothing whatsoever. And which is, you know, effectively, it's just another way of saying don't be anxious. Don't be anxious for anything. And that's what we're dealing with here. So maiden, we've got the, uh, the adverb here for nothing. And then merimanao, merimanao, that's our verb for uh, anxiousness. It's our verb that speaks of worry. It speaks of a divided mind. And uh, like the, the manao vocabulary that relates to uh, um, uh, like mnemonic devices, right? Different things in your memory that help jog your memory. You have little mnemonics that help you to remember Scrabble words. They help you to remember how to spell things and things like that, which always bugged me. I don't know why mnemonics is such a hard word to remember how to spell. <laughs> it almost, like somebody's messing with me just by making up these words. But then you have the, these, th- uh, these thoughts, you have these memories, the things that you're constantly keeping in mind so that you don't forget them. You keep them at the forefront of your mind. But then when that gets uh, divided, when, the, when there's a schism there, or, or not a schism, but a, a, a meris is a division. And so the line comes right down through the middle, and now you've got two different things, and now you're trying to keep both things in mind. And that doesn't always work. <laughs> and sometimes we're so busy trying to keep things juggled and keep both things in mind that we end up losing something in the process. Well, that's the idea of worry. So then instead of keeping the Lord at the forefront of our thinking, we kind of have now a divided thinking whereby, yeah, we're going to be thinking about the Lord, but at the same time I'm thinking about this other thing over here and I end up being worried. I end up being anxious. And when your thinking is that divided, then there's no stability. And that's the, really the imagery here of, the, of this term. And so the verb is merimanao, M-E-R-I-M-N-A-O. Number 3309 is the Strong's Index number on that if you use your Strong's Concordance for your word studies. It has 19 uses. Um, And and they're almost always negative, almost all of them are, uh, for being worried, being concerned, being anxious. But there are some sanctified worrying, and we'll talk about that this morning. What can take carnal worrying and make it sanctified? And uh, we'll deal with that. We also have the noun of marimna that's related to this study, uh, M-E-R-I-M-N-A, marimna. That's number 3308 in the Strong's Lexicon, six uses there uh, for worry, concern, or anxiety. That's a noun. And then, uh, and then the flip side, really, ah, marimnos, to be worry-free, to be concerned-free, and uh, a couple of uses there. And uh, that's 
uh, Strong's number 275. And, and the uses there, by the way, are in the marriage chapter, the marriage and divorce chapter. Uh, you get First uh, Corinthians 7, and Paul says, I would want you to be free from concern. I would want you to be free from, from worry. And the single man is free from worry. He's free from concern. But the married man, he's got divided interests. He was serving the Lord, and he's also serving his wife and ministering in, in his marriage and, and aspects there. So just uh, a couple of things here. Worry in the bad sense, and that's most of them. Worry in the good sense, and we call it concern, okay? <laughs> that way, uh, you know, we learn to speak the, 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 the Christian language. We learn to speak in a, in a way where if I use the word concern, well, then that just shows that I'm a thoughtful pastor. It shows that I'm, I'm shepherding my flock, that, uh, that I have a concern for the sheep, um, and then, but of course, if I use the word worry, then that means uh, it's a mental attitude sin, and I'm going through some kind of a emotional revolt, maybe, or who knows? I'm, I'm just a weak sister, and I have this worry going on. And so we learn how to we learn how to do that. We play these little verbal games, I guess. I don't know, but we use these terms, and that helps us maintain our thinking distinction. And I guess that's useful. But it's the same exact Greek word, and so really, what we're doing in English is kind of artificial related to the fact that we like to use concern in the positive way and, and worry in the negative way, but it's the same merimonao in, uh, in all these passages. It's the same uh, marimna and, and, uh, and marimnos in and, and these related forms. And so worry in the bad sense, which is most of them, and uh, concern in the good sense, which is in the marital passage of 1 Corinthians chapter 7, and then uh, some of the, the Pauline uh, verses there that speak of shepherding. Okay, so um, as far as this goes, I don't know that we actually have to spend a ton of time on it this morning, but we can at least remind you of what these words are. Matthew chapter 6, does, everybody knows Matthew chapter 6, and it gets paralleled in Mark uh, and in Luke, but let me just pick this up. Matthew 6, the Sermon on the Mount and what Jesus is dealing with. Verses that sometimes end up in wedding ceremonies. I don't think I included it last night, but the um, seeking first, I did include this last night, in um, not being worried about your life. For this reason I say to you, do not be worried about your life as to what you will eat or what you will drink, nor for your body as to what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? And so the Lord is actually urging us to have, to be spiritually minded, to have our spiritual priorities lined up, and then trust Him for the earthly matters. Trust Him for the temporal matters, that the first things stay first, and then the second things can stay second as we watch in grace how our Lord provides. Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow nor reap nor gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are they not? Are you not worth much more than they? And who of you, by being worried, can add a single hour to his life? You know, and, and folks that just major in this and specialize in worry that can spend hours and hours, endless hours, just uh, agonizing over, over uh, certain things. Really, what does that produce? <laughs> How productive is all that worry? Are you adding even a single cubit, a single span, a single hour to your life? It's, it's the most non-productive, useless waste of time imaginable, which is why the devil loves getting us in those kind of uh, mindsets. When if you can just make it a prayer item, faith rest it, let it go, then you have a whole lot of time on your hands for more productive things that, that glorify our Lord. 
Why are you worried about clothing? Observe how the lilies of the field grow. They do not toil nor do they spin. Yet I say to you that not even Solomon in all his glory clothed himself like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which is alive today and tomorrow thrown into the furnace, will he not much more clothe you, you of little faith? And so it's a faith deficiency issue. And the best way to to improve that and and remedy that is to have a fervent, effectual prayer life. And that's why we're going to see in Philippians 4, the answer to not being worried is to constantly being before the Father's throne of grace in prayer. So do not worry then, saying, what will we eat or what will we drink or what will we wear for clothing? Do not worry then. And it's the same verb we have when we're told, be anxious for nothing. For the Gentiles eagerly seek all these things, for your heavenly Father knows you need them. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. In other words, the temporal life, circumstances and details of life that you're all worried about, stop worrying about them. Make the Lord your priority. Just fix your eyes on Jesus. Make the Lord your priority. And then watch how the second things are provided for. And then if they're not provided for, you're relaxed about it. And you say, all right, it's not provided for, but the Father knows better. And uh, so these things I was all worked up about, turns out I didn't need them. Turns out uh, my God will supply all your need and all that stuff I was worried about wasn't, wasn't part of that. So we can be thankful for that. I would highlight those seek ye first does not mean seek ye only. All right, seek ye first is first, and uh, first implies a second, and it's not wrong to seek second as long as you are seeking first first. <coughs> that, I think, prevents abuses. It prevents uh, abuses of people that would be otherwise tempted to laziness that say, well, I went to church, and well, I prayed about it, and then, uh, and then God didn't provide. See, well, did you go to work the next day? Were you, were, you, uh, were you seeking secondly these other things? Or do you think that is just seek ye only the kingdom of God and his righteousness and then manna will arise in the morning like the dew in the, in the morning mist? And, and, you know, seek second is, uh, is understood. It just puts things in perspective here as we understand this. So then do not merimonao, do not worry about tomorrow for tomorrow will care for itself. Each day has enough trouble on its own. And so we have our spiritual focus placed correctly and we're living one day at a time. And so that's the, uh, the application there, all right? And so um, we read Matthew 6, Matthew 10. I think if I grab all the Matthew usages, we'll be pretty clear on the, the Mark and Luke ones as well. Matthew 10, 19. When they hand you over, and this is uh, with respect to the angelic conflict and what we do in our ministry, when uh, there are those that want to stop what we're doing in our ministry. So he says, I send you out as sheep in the midst of wolves, so be shrewd as serpents and innocent as doves. But beware of men, for they will hand you over to the courts and scourge you in their synagogues. We've got to be aware of this. Okay? Just because we're not worried about it doesn't mean we're ignorant about it. That means we're, we're, we have our eyes open, we're aware, we're alert. They will even be brought before governors and kings for my sake as a testimony to them and to the Gentiles. But when they hand you over, do not worry about how or what you are to say, for it will be given to you in that hour what you are to say. And this too, I think, gets abused, and so we want to be cautious as well that we recognize for these crisis moments, for these unusual, out-of-the-ordinary times of persecution, and when you find yourself in a place you've never been before and standing before someone... And uh, everything is completely out of your control. 
don't worry about it. Just uh, stay, keep your eyes on the Lord and just be amazed. He will speak and, and you'll say things and remember verses and, and those things. And, and then afterwards with hindsight, you'll look back and go, where did that come from? I don't remember. You know, that's amazing. And it's testimony to, to God's faithfulness there. Now, that those are in the crisis, unique, rare moments. This is not designed to be normal. This is not designed to be your habitual routine. This is not, this, this is for when circumstances are completely out of your control. All right? That's not today. That's not this morning. That's not right here, right now. Uh, this message is in control, all right? The normal ministry of the Word of God is in control. This is not a license. I've had charismatic pastors tell me this, that I, I waste my time studying Greek and Hebrew, and I waste my time with all that study in the in the office and whatever, that, that you should just not worry about what you're going to say. Just get in the pulpit and let the Spirit speak through you. And they're using this verse as their as their justification for lunacy, for absolute insanity. And uh, I, you know, I guess they do it, and I don't know how, how many years they can do that and keep it going, but uh, that to me, that's lunacy. That's just, uh, uh, I, would, I, would, I would tremble to stand before the, God's people and say, thus saith the Lord, and, and I know in the, in the back of my mind that I'm, I'm just winging it. What am I doing? You know, I would absolutely tremble before the Lord that, that, <laughs> that I didn't approach this with more reverence or more concern. So don't abuse this text like uh, don't abuse the Matthew 6 text in uh, in that regard. All right, Matthew 13 then, verse 22. More imperatives to not worry. And uh, Matthew 13, 22. The one on whom seed was sown among the thorns, this is the man who hears the word, and the worry of the world, the deceitfulness of wealth, choke out the word, and it becomes unfruitful. And of course, we commented on that before as well. All the time you spend frittering away and worrying about this and that and worrying about all these other things is time you're not spent glorifying Jesus Christ, bearing fruit, serving Him, pursuing your ministry, and everything else. The last one in Matthew is 28.14. By the way, those superscript A's, B's, and C's, you can ignore them if you'd like. I probably should not use them because um, I should find something else to use instead. Those are just my little cues. Those are my little cues that that little A, uh, I know in, in Matthew 6, that means it's a parallel with, with, uh, with Luke. In, uh, in the little B, that means it's parallel. I use those for the synoptic gospels to try to keep from the, the redundant Bible reading in, in, in that but I've got to find different symbols. I've got to find something other than the A, B, and C because those are too commonly used for the first part of the verse, the second part of the verse, the third part of the verse, things like that. So I don't want, uh, I don't want folks to get confused with uh, my little A, B, and C reminders. So um, if you have suggestions for little smiley face symbols or anything, let me know and I'll, uh, I'll start using those instead. All right. Finally then, Matthew twenty-eight fourteen. Um, <laughs> and uh, the uh, liars, I don't, I don't know, I think the soldiers are probably too smart to believe these guys, but uh, on Resurrection Sunday, the stone was rolled away and Jesus departed, and, and the, the, the Roman soldiers know they're in trouble, you know, um, and, you know, you never want an inmate to escape if, if you're in law enforcement, if you never want, uh, and, and, and if you're watching a body, you really don't expect 
bodies to, to leave or go anywhere. But um, these, these soldiers are in a bit of trouble. The guard has to report to the chief priest. And then um, the, the elders concoct this story here about, well, the disciples stole the body. And, uh, and, and they need the uh, soldiers to, to testify to that effect. So they offer them a large sum of money to the soldiers, uh, just flat out bribery. And uh, they say, you're to say the disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. And if this should come to the governor's ears, we will win him over. And we will win him over and keep you out of trouble, uh, keep you out of worry. You don't have to worry about it. We got this covered. And so uh, just tell the lie. Here's your money. We're gonna, we'll, f- we'll fade the heat on this and we'll cover with the, with the governor. And because uh, obviously Pontius Pilate's the most reasonable Roman in the world. And uh, so the soldiers did. They took the, uh, they took the bribe and uh, they did as they'd been instructed. And the story was widely spread among the Jews as, as it is to this day. And a couple of interesting things here too I find curious related to the doctrine of worry and related to the principles that we're studying here this morning. Um, not worrying, there can actually be satanic provision to not worry, that there can actually be false mechanisms by which, uh, you know, rather than go to prayer, rather than uh, trust in the promises and living in the Word of God, uh, the devil has says, hey, you know what, you don't want to be worried about that, let me take care of this. Let me find ways to keep you from worrying. Let me find ways, and money's a big, a big one, because uh, the devil can throw enough money at something and the person can grow complacent and say, hey, I don't have any worries. I can, uh, I can buy my way out of any trouble I can get into. And I'm insured against fire, I'm insured against flood, I'm insured against everything imaginable. And you get to a point, if there's enough money in the mix, you can start to think, I have no needs. I'm, I'm untouchable, I'm invincible. And uh, Scripture bears that out. And some of the countries of the Old Testament developed that attitude in, in terms of uh, being a god among men and being untouchable in, uh, in their wealth. And so, uh, yeah, and you would just ask yourself, who is this you're putting your faith in? You know, these guys that, uh, and, and I don't believe for a minute that they backed him up with, with uh, Pontius Pilate at all. I think uh, these Pharisees were, uh, the, the elders and chief priests, I think they were very delighted to have these uh, soldiers uh, executed as quickly as possible because that's fewer witnesses to the empty tomb, fewer witnesses to the stone having been rolled away. So, as far as that goes, we don't really know. So those are the uh, different uses in Matthew there for worry in the bad sense. Uh, we can uh, skip over Mark 4.19 because we've already read it in, uh, in Matthew. We can skip over Mark 13.11 because we also read that one. Luke 8, we read that one. Uh, Luke 10 is unique to Luke. That's not uh, one that we've read already. Luke 10.41 The Mary and Martha story is unique to the Gospel of Luke. And, uh, of course, we know it well. We preach it often. And uh, this is the one where the Lord says, Martha, Martha, you are worried and bothered about so many things. Worried and bothered. But only one thing is necessary, for Mary has chosen the good part, which shall not be taken away from her. And so there's a good worry verse to stick in our thinking. And uh, we've already read Luke 12. The verses there in verse 11, 22, 25, 26. Luke 21 is unique. Luke 21, 34. 
Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. Be on guard so that your hearts will not be weighted down with dissipation and the drunkenness and the worries of life, and that day will not come upon you suddenly like a trap. So there's the worries of life. The worries of bios, by the way. Bios life that chokes out your Zoe life, chokes out your spiritual life, and uh, the issues there. For will come upon all those who dwell on the face of the earth, but keep on the alert. You know, we talk about uh, the, the days of Noah and uh, what the tribulational martyrs are going to have to keep alert for. It's not a rapture passage, but it is an imminency application. And the days of Noah warning to the tribulational saints to stay faithful, talking about the second advent of Jesus Christ when he returns. And, uh, you know, everyone's going to be eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, all carrying along and all the, the joys and fun of, of temporal life. Uh, just you know, totally oblivious to the spiritual life realities because they're all enjoying the the the, the bios the bios life uh, realities, and the way uh, Satan and Antichrist have portrayed things and trying to bring in their utopia. And I imagine the the citizens of of that age before the before the judgment hits, uh, the 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 inhabitants of that age are going to think, wow. We've got it made. We're living in this golden age and all those judgmental, pesky Christian people are gone and, <laughs> you know, and things are great and all this stuff is going on. And, and then uh, they don't realize that here it comes and here comes the seals and trumpets and bowls. Oh my. And the tribulation unfolds related to that. So anyway, um, keep these things in prayer. I had last night, I had this very application that crossed my mind as we were eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage and the the things. And so, I mean, it was a fun night. And I tell you, festive and joyous and everything. And in the midst of all that, I a um, little vibration in my pocket as my phone received a, a, a Facebook messenger note from Cameroon and uh, one of the pastors we prayed for and some of the struggles they're going through, and, and including a, a, an uncle with a property that had been burned out and an aunt who had been shot to death by the Cameroonian military. And uh, he was asking for prayer because he was going to take a trip in the morning and uh, go into this new, this other village and they were laying a foundation stone for a new church. And I thought, wow, there's the contrast. <laughs> and here we are all fat, dumb, and happy and living life and blessed and protected in uh, the land of the free and home of the brave. And, and uh, we got brothers and sisters now that are, that are getting going through what they're going through. And, uh, and I appreciate how faithful the Lord is. And I appreciate that I have a device in my pocket that can get buzzed from Cameroon. I mean, isn't that amazing? And that, you know, I mean, with all the, the evil and all the pornography and darkness and terrible, the internet's got some terrible things, but for communication, for dissemination of doctrine, for the Grace Notes ministry and the emails to go all over this planet is uh, to me it's a it's a it's a beautiful thing and god works all things together for good and turns cursing into blessing and he uses the internet for uh, some remarkable aspects anyway praying over that and praying for our our brothers and sisters there in cameroon well those are the gospel records uh of course philippians 4 6 be anxious for nothing first peter 5 7 casting all your anxiety upon him right are we told you know, if, if, if you want to worry about stuff when you were told not to, when you're told that you don't have to, when you're told that God is concerned about you, that God is taking care of you, casting all your anxiety on Him because He cares for you, that's all the reason you need right there. He cares for you. He's worried about it. So you don't have to be. 
right? He's worried about you. He's concerned for you. He's taking care of you. And so by your insistence on rejecting that or thinking it's not sufficient or thinking that he can't handle this, how insulting is that to the, to the Lord who died for you and, uh, and is presently caring for you in your Christian walk? So to me, it becomes then insulting. And a lot of times when I confess the, the sin of worry, I tack onto that some additional sins of omission. And is it redundant? Well, probably, but I do it anyway. So, Father, I confess to you I was worried about such and such, and it was not a sanctified worry because uh, there was no faith and no claiming of the promises and no prayer life. It was just a worry, Father. It was a flat-out worry. And in, in the process of worrying, Father, I was failing to claim the promises. I was failing to lay it before your throne. I was failing to, to uh, avail myself of the encouragement of Scriptures. I was failing to cast it upon you because you care for me. So here's my one sin of worry, which has four or five sins of omission just tacked right on, right? Like a prosecutor that wants to tack a bunch of charges onto the, onto the case. We can do that with almost any overt sin. You can tack on those sins of omission as well. Because ultimately, think about the lost rewards of what you're doing there. You know, the lost rewards of not bearing fruit of not uh, glorifying Christ. It's like opportunity costs that are lost when, uh, when you've uh, wasted your money and other things in any event. So those are all in the negative sense. Now we have a handful in the positive sense, 1 Corinthians 7, 1 Corinthians 12, 2 Corinthians 11, and Philippians 2.20. Let's start with Philippians 2.20 because it's in the same, uh, same book as what we're dealing with here in chapter 4, and it's not that separated in, in uh, I wouldn't call it an immediate context, but I would call it a, a near context in Philippians. I lost Philippians. There it is. All right, Philippians. I'll tell you, it was a late night last night. Philippians 2. And I really feel sorry for the bride and groom. I mean, goodness, late night like that? Are you kidding me? <laughs> All right. This is uh, in the section here where he's talking about Timothy. And uh, he says, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you shortly so that I may also be encouraged when I learn of your condition. And then remember this, for I have no one else of kindred spirit who will genuinely be worried. But this is where we use the word concerned because we want to be proper about it. Merimanao. It's the same worry. It's the same merimanao who will genuinely be concerned for your welfare. For they all seek after their own interests, not those of Christ Jesus. And so in contrast, and this is extraordinary because when you study who his companions were and other people that were with him at this time, uh, these are faithful men. These are men that, that will be trained, that will be used, and, and will serve in, in other capacities later. But at this stage of their training, at this stage of their ministry preparation, uh, Timothy is the only one that's we call them, uh, you know, ordination ready or, or uh, ready to launch, and that kind of a thing. And um, all the rest were seeking after their own interests. Too selfish to be used by the Lord in the agapao love, selfless, sacrificial ministry of the Word of God. Timothy is the one that seeks after those of Christ Jesus. And so here's a clue for what turns worry into sanctified concern. You are seeking the interests of Jesus Christ. And you are prayerfully in fellowship with Jesus Christ. 
And so then you have the legitimate concerns related to the glory of Jesus Christ. And, and every pastor does. Every pastor has legitimate concerns over various sheep and uh, appetites that used to be larger than they are now. Or uh, fervency in the walk of faith that doesn't seem to be uh, as fervent as it used to be in, in aspects there. And so there are sanctified concerns because we're focusing on the Lord, the interests of Christ Jesus. And so there's the, the sanctified sense there. All right, backing up now then to First and Second Corinthians. It's not wrong in your marriage to have a concern for your spouse. That's normal. That's why it is what it is. <laughs> That's why the two become one and you are heirs together of the grace of life and you have legitimate concerns for each other. So as described here in 1 Corinthians 7, I want you to be free from concern. The one who is unmarried is concerned about the things of the Lord, how he may please the Lord. And uh, as, a, as an unmarried person with time and availability, uh, then there's a benefit there to, uh, to do that. But the one who is married is concerned about the things of the world, how he may please his wife. And you can flip it to the other gender as well and make a certain reciprocal application. The married person has legitimate concerns. And that's, that's just the way it, it goes. Uh, his interests are divided. That's by definition, that's worry. The woman who is unmarried and the virgin is concerned about the things of the Lord, that she may be holy both in body and in spirit. But the one who is married is concerned about the things of the world, how, he, uh, how she may please her husband. So it goes both directions on this, on legitimate marital concern. So this I say to your own benefit, not to put a restraint upon you, but to promote what is appropriate and to secure undistracted devotion to the Lord. And this comes in a larger context, even back to the first part of the chapter, where if you could be celibate, if God gifts you in that, well, then you could be, imitate Paul. But he recognizes that not all men are like that. Not all people are designed that way. And so it's better to marry than to burn, and that the design of marriage is, is for that purpose. Anyway, there's a whole realm of teaching on that, if you want, from 1 Corinthians 7, sitting there on the website, minding its own MP3 business, as far as that goes. But I tell you, this chapter... Uh, I, I woke up on my, not my wedding day, but my after wedding day, and it just, it struck me. And it struck me again when Bob was born, when my first child was born. And at each of these stages of life, it's just that weight of responsibility. But I remember as a married man waking up thinking, man, I'm in trouble, <laughs> you know? Seriously, thinking how accountable I was, thinking that that this, the, the greatest blessing of my life was such a responsibility and that, that I didn't want to, I, I wanted to provide for her. I didn't want to hurt her. I didn't want my dumb decisions to, to damage her, to impact her. And, and really, as a, as a bachelor, it's, you know, and it wasn't maybe the best of mindsets, but at least my mindset was, hey, you know, if I mess up, I pay the price. If I, you know, I, I, I that's the price I pay and it's my mistake, I pay that price. Um, and I did. And that's not a healthy mindset. But now, if I'm messing up, I'm paying the price, and she's paying the price, and my kids are paying the price. And it's just, I didn't want to live with myself in that kind of a, of a mindset. I said, I gotta, I gotta make sure this is right, so that she doesn't get hurt, and the kids don't get hurt, in the, uh, in the aspects there. Alright. And so we have it there. 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Another positive application. 
and verse 25. <clears throat> and this, I suspect, I don't know, I don't recall the exact exegesis when we went through this in, in the First Corinthians series, but the idea of division, remember we talked about the definition of merimanao and the idea of a divided thinking and divided uh, memory. And so that there's no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. And there may actually be a wordplay in a sense uh, right here in this word, but the idea that we have the same care for one another, the same worry for one another. And uh, what really helps to foster Christian unity in the body of Christ is that we recognize that we are all one. We are one body in Christ. And when one member suffers, we all suffer. And so we should have that that worry or that care. And it's described in a positive way. If one member suffers, all the members suffer with it. If one member is honored, all the members rejoice with it. And so uh, I take this as a sanctified use of merimanao, that it's worried, but it's worried in sacrificial love on behalf of one another in the body of Christ. I think it's in agreement with what we saw in, in Philippians 2. The concern is keeping our attention on the things of the Lord. And uh, that would include our brothers and sisters and the things they're struggling with. Finally then, 2 Corinthians eleven twenty-eight. Second 2 Corinthians eleven twenty-eight. And um, you know, if there ever was a uh, if there ever was a uh, church that gave Paul fits, <laughs> it was this one, right? Corinth was his uh, most problem-packed assembly uh, through both First and Second Corinthians. He had those issues. He even he had this fear at the beginning of the chapter as he expressed his godly jealousy, and he said uh, he was afraid as the serpent deceived Eve that their minds would be led astray from the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. So we have fear, I think, as a related principle, whereby there's sinful fear and there's godly fear. There's sinful worry, there's godly worry. We get down uh, to his uh, autobiography here and all the things he'd gone through in uh, his afflictions, in the, in the uh, undeserved suffering. He says in verse 23, in far more labors, in far more imprisonments. How many imprisonments had he had prior to 2 Corinthians? See. He hadn't had his Roman imprisonment yet. And he hadn't had the Caesarean imprisonment yet. As far as we know, in the book of Acts, he had a single night in a Philippian jail. Got out the next morning and led the jailer to Christ. Okay, But here he says, in far more imprisonments, plural. Not just plural, but more than plural. You know, Far more than any other servant of the Lord. And so um, we address this when we think about a, an Ephesian imprisonment and the authorship of, of uh, the book of Philippians. Far more imprisonments, beaten times without number, often in danger of death. Five times I received the Mel Gibson treatment of the 39 lashes. Did you ever see that in the Passion of the Christ? Brutal, brutal to watch that. And uh, of course, Jesus had that in the, in the lead up to the crucifixion. And then Paul experienced that five different times in his career. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. That was in the aspect they dragged him out of the city and thought he was dead. Three times I was shipwrecked. That's before the voyage to Rome where he was shipwrecked. And, and uh, I wouldn't get on a boat with Paul. That, that doesn't seem smart. A night and a day I've spent in the deep. I've been on frequent journeys in dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my countrymen, dangers from the Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, 
dangers on the sea, dangers among false brethren. That's the worst. Because you think they're on your side. You think they're there with you. And then they stab you in the back. I've been in labor and hardship through many sleepless nights, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. Now I like reading all of that because all of that leads up to the dismissal. He just wipes it off the table. He says, who cares? And the rest of us read through all that and go, wow, I haven't done even a fraction of that. I'm just, you know, what is that? You talk about serving the Lord and suffering for Jesus and all this stuff. Wow, all the hardships we have. But then he says, apart from such external things. Isn't that beautiful? You know, it's like all of that is just earthly stuff. Let it go. Apart from such external things, there is the daily pressure on me of worry, concern for all the churches. That's where he really struggled. That's what hurt more than the, the, the scourging and the lashes and the stoning and the shipwrecks and all of that. Concern for all the churches. And this, this to me is staggering. This is beyond a, um, I can't even imagine. It's, it's beyond fathoming because I, I, can, I can grasp one shepherd with one flock, right? I can grasp Austin Bible Church. <laughs> I can grasp one pastor and one flock, and that's enough. I mean, that's more than enough. That's overwhelming with all the worry for all the, 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 the marriages and families and church and everything. Multiple churches? You mean an apostle with plurality of churches and he's got, you know, a dozen or more, however many he has, including all those knucklehead pastors leading those churches? <laughs> all right. That'll, that'll turn your hair grayer than anything. And Paul had all of those. So he says, concern for all the churches. Daily pressure on me of concern for all the churches. Who is weak without my becoming weak? And you get into intercessory prayer here and you actually spiritually experience the, the, uh, the issues of what your flock is dealing with. Who is led into sin without my intense concern? So now it's ramped up even more into degrees we can't even imagine. And so Paul describes this, and describes it in a positive way. This is not the carnal worry in the bad sense. This is worry in the appropriate sense, in the sanctified sense. Because in all of these, Paul is making these uh, prayer items before the Lord, as we understand it there. All right, so for nothing be anxious. For nothing be anxious. But in everything, make God to know your requests. In everything, make God to know your requests. It's an aorist passive imperative of norizo. Some people like to say gonorizo, but I prefer just to leave the G silent. Norizo. G-N-O-R-I-Z-O. Norizo. And this one's causative. Again, it's a passive imperative. Just like we had as a passive imperative to let your gentle spirit be known by all men, but let your requests be made known to God. So men have to know your gentleness. God has to know your request. So quit worrying about it. Just tell God what you want. Tell God what you need. Tell God your request. Not your complaint. <laughs> your request. And this too is, is curious because I think... Uh, I had a boss that would tell me this. I had a, a sergeant that would tell me this. Don't just give me a complaint. What's your solution? You know, you come to me with your problems. What's your solution? 
I don't have a solution. I wanted you to give me a solution. I just have a complaint. You know, well, coming before the Lord and making your request known. Now, we're going to have some fun with this. Um, the idea, because God's omniscient, right? Did we, did we, didn't we not just study that in uh, The Essence of God? God's omniscient. He knows everything. He knows everything that is, everything that might be. He knows everything that could be but isn't, but it could be if other choices get made. He knows all of the hypotheticals. He knows all of the parallel universes and timelines. If, if other choices had been made, God knows all that too. God knows everything, which is more than we think it is in, in terms of all, every reality and every potentiality. He knows it all. So how do I tell God something he does not know? How do I make him know something if he already knows it? And this is part of our blessing in prayer. This is part of why, even though he knows what we need before we even ask, he still wants us to ask. He commands us to ask. It pleases him to ask. He is benefited by the asking. He himself experiences the benefit when we ask. Doesn't that just boggle your mind? And there's aspects of how the eternal God, the unchanging, eternal, absolute I am, how he chooses to interface with his creation. And, and, and I want to make sure we're solid on this, because I think this is huge. I think this, this takes us into areas, for example, uh, when, when there's sin and, and ugliness and homosexuality and all that's going on in Sodom and Gomorrah, what does he do? He goes down there to look. He goes down there with a couple of angels, and they walk into the place, they're, they're, they're looking out, the Lord and Abraham are on the hillside watching over and the men are going down into the city. He says, I will go and I will see if the report is, is true. Or even before that, in, in the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve sinned. What does God do? He comes walking in the garden in the cool of the day, his normal time of day, his normal routine. And what does he do? He starts asking questions. Is that because he's ignorant? Is that because he doesn't know he says, where are you, Adam? He knows. Hiding behind that tree over there, <laughs> right? Wrapped up in fig leaves with his wife. He knows all that. He's known it before the foundation of the world. Omniscience knows it. But now there's an experience of coming to know by a non-omniscient means, if that makes any sense. Okay? And some of this, I don't know if you ever study um, philosophy or epistemology or some of these things. There's a whole science, a whole realm of, of study on how do you know anything, right? Including, uh, this cracks me up, there's a bunch of skeptics out there that, that say you can't know anything. It's like, well, how do you know that? <laughs> I just, I have fun with them. But I mean, it, it's, it is legitimate. I think it's a legitimate field of study. How do you know what you know? And is it reasonable to, to know what you know and to accept it? Is it reasonable? Is it grounded in, in, in evidence and reason? And, and, you know, with whatever kind of certainty any of us finite creatures can have, we can know what we know. So, uh, things there. Anyway, there's also different kinds of knowledge in terms of things that you know intuitively and then things you know experientially. Uh, there's a difference between know that and know how process of knowing. And so there's, there's different things about, um, you know, I know, I know academically, I know objectively, you know, the way things kind of work, but I, don't, I wouldn't know how to do it. 
Okay, and so there's distinctions there. So we have the omniscient God who knows absolutely, who knows everything perfectly, absolutely, eternally. No one, no one's disputing that. But the things that he does not yet know experientially until he submits himself to that process. And the best example, of course, is our Savior, who when the Word became flesh, dwelt among us. And that he learned, he grew, and he learned, and he gained experience in his humanity. Having laid aside his privileges, he learned and he grew in his experience. And so he learned those things, choosing not to access his omniscience. Okay? Now, like I say, that's our best example. But is it our only example? And I want you to chew on this between now and next week. Chew on this. Is there a sense in which the Father who knows everything is also the Father who's listening and waiting to be told? He's listening and he's waiting to be told, not tapping into omniscience, of course. He doesn't stop being omniscient. But he is waiting for the prayer to be uttered because he desires for that prayer to be uttered. And his plan calls for that prayer to be uttered so that he can then act in response to that prayer. Remember, this is a part of how God condescends to his creation. How God is infinite and absolute, but he's created angels and humans, and we are not infinite and absolute. We are very finite. We are very monopresent. We are very uh, unidirectional in our, in our time orientation, right? It's always one day at a time moving forward. We would love to roll the clock back. And I know I've got a lot of things I'd like to undo and, and go back and, and warn my younger self about. But we we're, we're monodirectional in the, in the time stream. And, uh, and so God condescends as He relates to us. He's a relational being. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in eternal fellowship with each other. But then God and us in fellowship as well. Our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son. And in fellowshipping with us, He condescends to our capacity. And since we're temporal creatures, He operates within time, both transcendent and imminent. We studied that. Transcendent, He's beyond space and time, but imminent, He operates within space and time. And so, in a sense, He's waiting, waiting for us to confess so He can cleanse us from all unrighteousness and restore us to fellowship. Waiting for us to ask so he can provide exceeding abundantly beyond all that we ask or think. Waiting for that, that request to be made known. Let your request be made known to God. So cause him to know, not just via omniscience, but cause him to know via your request, via your communication. Okay? And I find it interesting, this is a verb that's used 25 times in the New Testament. 24 of them are with ignorant recipients. 24 of them are used, either God is speaking, or a person is speaking, or an angel, somebody is speaking, and in conveying information to an ignorant recipient. This is the one time and the only time that information is being conveyed to an omniscient recipient. An omniscient recipient, God of course, to an omniscient recipient who already knows what you're telling him, but he wants you to make him known. He wants to hear it from you. And I hope that makes sense. He wants to hear it from you. (laughs) 
<laughs> All right. There's, um, I'm going to let it go here. There's, there's other ways we can illustrate, and some of it happens in ministry. You can't help it to happen in ministry. You, uh, we learn things about one another, and of course we never gossip. Gossip's a sin. But we share prayer requests, and we, uh, we learn uh, different things. And sometimes, um, as a pastor, I learn things that I am not free to discuss. I'm not supposed to know, so I act like I don't know. And then it gets complicated. Because then I forget what I'm not supposed to not know. And, and, and then somebody says something, oh, did you hear so-and-so was pregnant? I, oh, did I know that? Did I know that I knew that? Okay. So I knew that, but I didn't hear it from them. Okay. I heard it from my wife. She tells me a lot. I, I, hear, I hear it from other people. I hear it from deacons. I hear it from... And so who do you hear it from? So God who's omniscient, God knows what you need before you even ask, but He wants to hear it from you. He wants to hear it from you because, here's the thing, because there's an adversary out there. The adversary who poses as the anti-father. The adversary who has vowed to be like the Most High God. The adversary who loves to provide for His children and who loves to step across the boundaries and provide for the father's children as well, if he can get away with it. And what delights the father more than anything is when you go to the father in prayer, it's a thumb in the eye of Satan. I go to the father in prayer and I say, Father, I want your provision. I want nothing to do with what that snake is trying to give me. I want nothing to do with that false father. I want nothing to do with this world system. And so, Father, I'm, I'm accepting your grace. I'm accepting your will. And if you choose to give it, I will praise you. If you choose to withhold it, I'm still going to praise you, Father, because I want nothing that that adversary wants to offer. I want nothing that his world system would seduce me with. And so by voicing that in prayer as he designed it, we fulfill his good pleasure as the loving Father for each one of us. And to me, that's a beautiful thing. Let's pray. Father, I do thank you for your truth and your faithfulness and the blessing we have to study these issues. I thank you for the twin imperatives to be anxious for nothing but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving to let our requests be made known to God. I thank you, Father, for these mechanisms and we're going to study them and study how they're connected. And Father, I pray that we, uh, we humble ourselves before you and we recognize that in everything is in everything and we not fall for the snare and try to hold things back, or we think there's some things that are too little for you to be worried about, and, and, and so we don't want to bother you with the little stuff, Father. We'll just handle that ourselves, and we, we don't, we'll only bother you with the big stuff we can't handle. That is, that is another satanic lie, Father. In, in everything, we give these matters to you, and I thank you that you care for us. We give you the praise and the glory, Father, in Jesus Christ's most precious and holy name. Amen.